You are now inside Japan. Are you currently working in Japan or want to be in the future? This is the show for you. Interviews with employers, foreigners doing interesting things, job hunting and hopping strategies, and a lot more. And now, your host, James. James from ALT Insider. Thanks for coming in for episode number three of the Inside Japan podcast. Huge shout out this time to jobsjapan.com for setting up this interview with Simon from modernenglish.net, which is an English school. And yeah, this is just another great interview of someone's path to Japan. Uh, started from Aikawa teacher, and now he's doing many different things. Um, I don't want to spoil anything, so I'll, I'll leave it at that, but many different things. Um, before we get to that interview, I do want to shout out some feedback I got on Twitter at ALT Insider FY. It was really great to hear. Um, said, hi, James. Just want to say I really enjoyed the first episode of the Inside Japan podcast. I'm a few years out from relocating to Japan. The first episode hit the nail on the head in regards to my biggest concern. Bravo and keep up the good work. Thanks so much for that. I always enjoy hearing feedback. And yeah, in terms of everything, um, ratings, feedback, listens, Inside Japan podcast is going great. So thanks so much, guys, for making that happen. It's all about I want to make the show as good as I can for you guys. So if you have any feedback, please do not hesitate to send it my way in one of those avenues, Facebook, Twitter, all those ways. I'm ready to hear it. So awesome. Uh, as for today's interview with Simon from Modern English, uh, the thing to listen for this time, the kind of thing, the takeaway, the biggest takeaway for me was uh, Simon is a guy that just makes stuff happen, right? It's it's not about anyone can have ideas. I have a million ideas a day myself. But I never make, you know, 99.9% of the ideas I don't do anything with. And Simon is not like that. He has an idea, sees if it's, you know, thinks it, you know, thinks it through, thinks it through, of course, and sees it's going to be a, a viable option and then makes it happen. And he's had some failures, but uh, he's had a lot of success as well. So, yeah, I don't want to spoil everything he's doing now, but just listen for that in this interview, like his kind of drive to make stuff happen. More than just make ideas, it's, it's good to have ideas, but more than that, the action is the hard part, right? And Simon ha has no problem in making that happen. So... Sit back and enjoy my interview with Simon from Modern English. All right, guys, it's a very special guest today. His name is Simon. He's doing uh, many things. I wear a wide breadth of things he's doing in Japan right now. How are you doing today, Simon? I'm fine, James. How are you? Yeah, definitely excited to have you on here to learn about your extensive uh, array of things you do, portfolio, I guess is the right word, of things to do in Japan. Uh, but let's start with the let's start with the end point here. So um, can you give us a quick overview of what kind of what are you doing now in Japan for a profession? Uh, I'm the CEO of a company called Modern English. Uh, it's actually Modern English UK and Geisha. And we are in ELL, uh, which is the term we use uh, English language learning. So that covers teaching and learning and publishing. We have a chain of schools called Modern English. They're franchises and affiliate schools. And we publish learning materials. Happy Valley is our preschool brand. Um, and we're developing uh, tech. We've published some uh, some games which are available in the uh, App Store. Uh, we're developing an online system, and we also have distribution for our products in Taiwan, China, and Europe. And we also have a share in a school in the UK. So there you go. That's a lot of stuff there. Um, so I'm guessing a wild called a wild a big hunch. But uh, when you first got to Japan, you weren't doing all these things, right? So when you first got to Japan, what were you doing, and how did you kind of make your way to Japan in the, in the first place? Yeah, I sort of came to Japan um, in the spirit of a fruit picker, really. Um, I'd been traveling for about two and a half years before I came to Japan. I left England when I was 25, uh, spent some time in Thailand, a year and a half in Australia, best part of a year in New Zealand, a few months in Hong Kong, back to the UK. 
and then came to Japan. And the idea was to become a qualified English teacher. And that was a portable skill that would allow me to travel more, particularly in Asia. I was very interested in immersing. Sounds very grand now, but I was very interested in immersing myself in a foreign language and a, and a foreign culture. And so I came to Japan and I, uh, I knew some people in Osaka. So I came to Osaka and uh, I interviewed I interviewed for one of the chains not long after my arrival. Um, I took a look at them. They took a look at me. And I think we thought between us this wasn't going to work out. So <laughs> instead, I, uh, I got a job um, in a small school about half a mile away from where I'm sitting now. And uh, I worked there kind of semi-full-time, semi I guess. Um, didn't uh, really get into the immersive lang uh, language or cultural experience I'd set out for for about a year. Started to learn Japanese by myself about a year after I'd been here. And about two and a half years after working at uh, the small school that I was at, I decided I'd, have an I'd had enough of that. And um, I thought... Uh, I would give it a go myself, thought maybe I could do a better job, uh, which again sounds very, very grand, quite arrogant. I was young. I wasn't even at the time. So, so I, I quit and um, I started teaching um, exclusively uh, out of my uh, my then apartment and to private students. I already had private students at the time, but I started advertising. My Japanese was basically good enough to answer the phone and uh, talk to people uh, to arrange to meet them in a cafe to do a, a free trial lesson. And so this was 1998, and uh, at the time I didn't know whether I was going to stay in Japan, and so I did that for a year, and you know my, my income had doubled within six months, and then, then it doubled again. I got married in 1999, um, still wasn't sure if I was going to continue to do this. I had a parallel part-time hobby career as a, uh, in writing. I used to write for a magazine called the Kansai Time Out. Uh, I eventually became associate editor of the Kansai Time Out, uh, SU Press, who uh, published the Kansai Time Out, published a book I wrote called We Are Nippon. That was in 2002. And up until that point, I was still considering uh, going into journalism full time. Um, however, I think I realized that um, it wasn't something I wanted to do. I had opportunities to go down to Tokyo to work for one of the newspapers, but decided not to. So 2002, 2003, I decided to really focus on the English school business and take that seriously. And we opened up our franchise in 2003. Wow, okay, so let's go. So the years you're throwing out there, 1999, 2001, 2003, just for people that might not know, uh, it's a very different landscape than it is now for English teaching stuff, right? That was kind of the golden years, right? I think it was, yeah, it was one It was one section of the golden years. I think there had been previous golden years before that. So I, I arrived in Japan in 95. And uh, so late 90s to early 2000s, yeah, was a uh, was big boom time uh, for the English language learning industry here. I think previous to that, in the 80s, there'd been a there'd been a massive boom that had ended round about 95, 96. There were schools like ATI and uh, NCB, and anecdotally, you hear stories that people used to come in and put three million yen in cash on the counter to, uh, to book their lessons for the f six months of the year. And that yeah, no, that would have been late 80s, early 90s. So I think there had been a previous boom. But yeah, there was another one, <clears throat> largely um, held up by uh, primetime TV advertising by Nova. You know, they were advertising at huge expense every night 
uh, all of those uh, TV commercials, I'm sure everybody remembers. They're, they're quite entertaining, a lot of them. And that had a great boost for the whole industry. That, that pushed everybody up. That benefited every single private teacher in Japan and every small private language school, um, as well as obviously the company. Yeah. But so it used to be a case of uh, opening a school and, um, and they were pretty much successful from day one. Yeah. Cool. So then, you know, that's obviously a big leap, though. So you were doing private lessons by yourself, which something a lot of people try to do, and you made that really successful. Um, is there any kind of advice you can give people that to make? Obviously, you're a good teacher; people liked you. But is there anything else more to it, or was it just like the good market and stuff like that? I'm not. I'm not sure about a good teacher and people. <laughs> me. I'm, not, I'm not sure whether those two things are true. I think you have to uh, be really, really clear about what you want to do. And um, after I got married in 1999, I moved out of the apartment I was teaching from, and I turned that into three classrooms basically and I used to take time off uh, out of the schedule to sit and plan and I worked out a plan I, I wrote it all down on the whiteboard and uh, I worked out how many hours uh, I needed to employ somebody and how many students that would be for to enable me to step out of the classroom and I was systemizing basically from day one and doing a budget from day one um, it was it was pretty you know back of a cigarette packet sort of stuff at the time uh, but it was planning and systemizing that allowed me to uh, to grow. Yeah, cool. That's something, yeah, that, some people just take it as you know, uh, you know, I'll take a lesson. It's, it's three thousand yen for an hour, and that's the end of it. But you kind of were taking it to a next higher step than that, right? Three thousand yen an hour. Right, whatever. Yeah, I mean, sorry. What you know what I'm talking about? You know, the, 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 how much it is now? I do, and it's very interesting that you mentioned that. You know, when I first arrived, for a, for anybody doing a private, the benchmark was five thousand yen an hour. So I think you know the revenue has changed as well. But you're right. I mean, it depends what you want to do. Again, you know, if you're only going to be in Japan for a couple of years, you're working a full time job or a semi full time job. Those privates at three three thousand yen an hour are a great source of uh, extra cash. You know, and you can have a very good lifestyle doing that. So if that's one what you want to do that's absolutely fine if you want to um, you know start a school and then maybe expand from there you have to think about things differently mm -hmm. okay so then let's go to a moment you said I want to make uh, you know I want to go for the make my own school uh, so what kind of goes into that I mean I know creating a business in Japan as a whole is a big ordeal and stuff but I, I guess you're married at that point so maybe that made it smoother what was that process like for you I wasn't married when I started oh, I did I did everything myself. So I answered the phone and I got friends or students to help me write the ad copy. Uh, I, I did it completely all on my own. And I think um, because I wasn't married and I'd quit my job, I just had enough at my last job. I just quit it. I had nowhere else to go. And I think I had that, you know, classic immigrant drive that I had to do something here. There was no family to fall back on. Uh, there were no benefits I could fall back on, and I didn't want to get a job. Getting a job was the last thing I wanted to do. So I had to make a go of it myself, and I think that was the drive that made me successful. Of course, there was also a market that was very receptive uh, to English lessons at the time. And even though the place where I was, there were 10 schools within walking distance of where I was, there was still uh, enough business for me to carve out um, what at the time was uh, basically a self-employed uh, teacher position and then go on and build that into a school. I never, I was never comfortable teaching young learners, children. I was never comfortable with that. So as soon as I quit my last job in 1998, that's the last time I ever taught a kid's class. So right from day one, I took on people to do that for me. Um, and then that's, you have to start to learn things that how to recruit, how to train, how to implement curricula, how to get the right people in the right place. And it's a very, very steep learning curve. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So was there any kind of, you know, growing pains in those beginning times? I mean, did you ever think, well, maybe this, this might not work. I'm not sure, you know, any kind of, un, un, you know, not sure if it was going to work or not in the future. 
Um, yeah, I was, I was constantly, uh, I was constantly unsure whether it was going to work. When I look back to the uh, plan that I wrote on the whiteboard, and I saw the numbers that were necessary, it was, uh, it was pretty daunting how many numbers I needed to uh, allow me to step out of the classroom. And of course, it, it, you know, if you wanted to do that all in one month, it would have been impossible. But um, I did it step by step. But very early on, uh, with a with a partner, um, we did a branch. Uh, which was reasonably close to where I was, but not so easy to get to via public transport. And I had two teachers working for me at this point at my what became my head school. And we sent them over to the branch and we hired somebody else and I worked with his partner. And um, it wasn't a complete disaster, but it was it was very, very difficult. And from that, I learned that a, I didn't really want to do branches because it just became a management job and looking after people is the most difficult thing there is to do. And and second, I didn't want a partner. Uh, the, the, the guy that I partnered with was a really nice guy, but we just had different ideas. So I was lucky, I suppose, that only lasted about three or four months and we just decided to call it quits. Uh, so I, I learned that I learned that uh, really early on. Something had come up with a lease. We had to, we, the, there was, it, we were quite fortunate really that it, uh, there were circumstances that allowed us to close it down in a painless way. Um, there was something with the lease. We had to get out of the premises. We couldn't find something else suitable nearby. So we, we just, uh, there weren't that many students at the time. So we sort of apologized to them, gave refunds where necessary. Don't recall if there actually were any refunds. And uh, sort of got out of it with goodwill intact, but decided just to call it quits. And that's when I decided that I wasn't going to do branches and I wasn't going to have a partner. And that's why we got into franchising. Yeah, so let's talk about that. So that's a whole, you know, that's a, I think a very small percentage of people that start their own school can make it to the point where they can do franchise. So what kind of was your thinking going in there and how did you make that happen? The prime motivator for me to do franchises was when I quit my job in the small school and became self-employed my motivation went through the roof everything all of a sudden overnight meant so much more uh, it was all of my own creation and I lived or died by my successes or failures and the quality of my work went up the amount of work I did increased which I don't mind I, I don't mind working long hours um, and so with the franchising rather than be employed at a branch where if you're successful and you, and you do a good job you go home with a warm feeling and you might be lucky if you get a three percent pay rise for the next year of your contract um to put people in the position where they are completely rewarded by their own efforts uh, was what i wanted to do with franchising so the idea was that because i was speaking japanese although you know quite frankly i don't know how i had the nerve to do it now looking back on the level of japanese i had at the time but Lots of people aren't in the position, most people in fact, aren't in the position to be able to answer the phone in Japanese, let alone do all of the admin, uh, the student counseling, uh, find curricula, etc. So the idea was to create back office and curriculum and training services to allow people to run their own school. Wow, wow. Okay. So that's, a, that's a big undertaking though. So, you know, what do, when somebody gets a franchise with Modern English at that time, what do they get? They get all, everything they need, just a you know, turnkey solution or was it just kind of the framework? Yeah, I mean, basically, they got we used off the shelf textbooks largely at the time, and we had a system to tie all of that together. And so, but they basically got uh, staff answering the telephone, doing all the scheduling for them. Uh, we extend, and we've basically extended and improved our services every year we've been in business. Um, and you know, the amount of uh, the amount of services that um, 
people get now compared to what they did in 2003 is quite remarkable really you should probably follow this up with a um, an interview with john Pedeswa, who's our uh, second ever franchisee he started in 2000, august 2003 and he's still there in tezakayama in osaka so he's seen the development of modern english from the point of view of a franchisee all the way through and i'm pretty sure he would agree that the services that we offer now are light years away from from what we did uh, when we first started. But yeah, basically, you could set up a classroom and we help people with the location search and we do negotiations on it, on uh, properties for the leases. Set up the classroom and we help with the adverts. We get all the adverts out and then we we talk about switching the franchise on. It's ready to go and we're waiting for the phone calls. We have a system whereby uh, we can send. Uh, potential students up to the franchise um, without them needing to speak to each other. So we handle all of the communication. And um, yeah, once that's switched on, the school's up and running. And it's basically, it's the same as working in uh, any kind of like chain school or, or, or large-ish private language school that has a reception area. And if you went into that school, you'd be given your file or your, your lesson pl- your schedule for the day. You go into the classroom and the students come in, you teach them and they leave. It's exactly the same as that, except the reception and the admin function is physically removed from the franchise, and we do all of that centrally, like a call center. I guess I want to ask you, since you made it, went upon yourself to start your own school, uh, what it makes going with modern English so much better than starting by on, by their own, like you did? You know, what what can they? What kind of person is this perfect for? You know. Um, you don't have to make all the mistakes I did, and it won't take you a tenth of the time it took me to get all this sorted out. It's basically available to you from day one, um, and it's tried and tested. Um, we know all the mistakes uh, that and the pitfalls, and there are many pitfalls that a lot of people make. If everybody wants to do everything on their own, uh, they should go ahead and do that, but they'll probably find it very, very difficult, you know. Uh, nobody can do everything. Nobody can be a great teacher, a copywriter, a trainer, an accountant. Um, you know, if if you're a foreigner and you're going to answer your own telephone, how good is Yakego? Can you speak formal Japanese? You know, you, you you probably can't. So there are so many things that you can't do yourself that basically we provide. And one of the things that uh, I always try and get across to people is that as uh, providers of a service of English language learning, we are providing expertise and yet so many small school owners or independent teachers seem so reluctant to hire in any other form of expertise you know why on earth would anybody want to try and do their accounts or their tax return themselves when it's actually cheaper to pay an expert to do it for them who will find a way of earning them more money than they could themselves in tax returns so it's basically um, a, a collection of it's a toolbox essentially uh, that you can use um, to uh, run, start up and run your own school without having to learn everything from scratch. Let's go about initial investment, right? So like in terms of if I want to join Modern English or if I want to start my own school, what kind of numbers are we talking about there? What kind of, what, what about in your time and maybe nowadays, is it much different? We have a, a sign-up fee for our uh, franchises. This is all on the website. I'm not, I'm not going to do a, a, an advert for it now, but all of our um, fees are on the website. But essentially, we've got a sign-up fee. And if you're starting from scratch, you've then got to find and furnish premises, uh, get all of that ready, get your initial marketing out there, make sure you've got your curriculum set up. If you're not doing it on your own, if you've got a reception function and one or two teachers, you've got to hire and train all of those people. You've got to have all your legal 
documents sorted out. So your contracts for students, your uh, HR contracts, your lease contract has to be sorted out. And then you open on day one massively in debt and a cash flow negative. <laughs> okay, so that sounds fun. Uh, but then, <laughs> if you don't have, if you don't have uh, cash flow, if you don't have income when you start off, uh, you open the door and you're paying at least the rent if you're a, a solo teacher owner operator. If you are a school that's employing uh, admin staff and teachers, you're paying rent and their salaries before you earn any income. So your first target is to hit break even point. Coming to Japan is obviously, you know, there's a lot of ways to do it. Most people take the English teaching route, but, you know, a lot of people get with, uh, you know, the big companies like GL, so one of these. Uh, would you recommend starting your own school for someone that's just coming to Japan for the, you know, first time? Or do you recommend they get their feet wet working for someone else first? Absolutely. Yeah, I would not say jump into this with no experience of a, uh, either, you know, the country uh, or the industry. If you haven't, if you've never taught before, uh, don't open your own school. If you've never lived in Japan before, if, well, if you've never lived abroad before, if you've never lived in your own country before, coming directly from living in your own country to living in a foreign country and starting a business at the same time is going to be pretty demanding for a lot of people, I would think. You know, if you're not, if somebody's not in Japan at the moment and they want to come here, yeah, I would certainly, first thing I would recommend they do is get a teaching qualification and then maybe get a job at one of the chains or come as an ALT, uh, get to know the country, see if they like the lifestyle. And uh, and then they can think about opening their own school later on. I definitely would not jump into it feet first. What do you think? You know, a lot of people have this. You know, have this idea. I want to start my own school. Uh, most of these schools that people do, they aren't successful. They 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 close very quickly. So, you know, what do you think makes yours successful? So successful enough to franchise. You know, I mean, what do you, what do you think makes yours different? Aside from the fact that we're brilliant at what we do, yeah, <laughs> yeah. it's true though. You know, I mean, I think it's something like at least fifty percent of new businesses go bust in the first year. It might even be higher. Uh, the percentage of franchises that go bust in the first year is much, much lower. And these figures are true across all industries, across all countries, I think. Essentially, if you, if you, you know, I've been doing this for 20 years. So if you buy into our system, you've got uh, our help and our support in a tried and trusted system that's been operating for this long. If you start uh, yourself from scratch uh, in the way that we just described earlier, you've got all of your mistakes ahead of you. And so you're going to make all of those mistakes. Some of those mistakes could be fatal. But the other thing is you're going to be pulled in so many different directions that you're not going to know what to do. You burn out. You maybe don't attract enough uh, business immediately <clears throat> or you're too tired to go and hand out the flyers at the station in the morning and you don't get the numbers that you need. You can't pay the rent um, and, and things fall apart. And it's very common in all industries for for the vast majority of uh, of uh new businesses to fail. So with, with a franchise, you're buying into something that has a proven track record. And we've had franchises that have closed. You know, we were up to 14 schools in 2007. There was then the Nova crash. There was the drop. There'd been the drop in the market before that, but then the Nova crash and then the Lehman shock. And the, the uh, environment changed very, very quickly. So we had a couple of franchises that opened and it was a, a question. It was basically a case of uh, wrong person, wrong place, wrong time. You know, and that was a big shock to us. We never had uh, schools that have failed before that. Oh, uh, yeah. So, you know, over the years, obviously, as English has gone, you know, markets change and it becomes the cool thing to do, not the cool thing to do. Have you noticed any heating up since the 2020 is coming? You know, people, you know, the Olympics are coming around. It's always a hot time for learning English, right? Not really. I wouldn't say so. A little bit. I mean, if we go back to what I was saying before about 2007, the drop in the market, then the Nova crash and the layman shock. Since then, um, industry 
figures estimate that between 40 and 60 percent of total business volume has gone in that period it's like gone disappeared uh, recent reports show there's been a three to five percent increase over the past couple of years but that's a five percent increase based on the fact that 40 or 60 percent had disappeared uh, 11 years ago so i think there's been a bit of a bump there's a couple of sectors that are quite uh, healthy very young learners is quite healthy and uh, the business sector is quite healthy and there's, uh, but no, I think there's been a overall a drop in the market, and there is oversupply. The um, analogy I always use is the hairdresser analogy, in that there are so many hairdressers around. To open up a new hairdresser, essentially, unless you have virgin territory such as a new town, you need to take enough business away from the existing hairdressers to open up a new one. So you've basically got to close one hairdresser to open up a new hairdresser. And I think English schools in Japan are at that point of saturation now yeah yeah so you know if you've been anyone that lives in japan that's listened to this you know there's hairdressers everywhere and you know you see <laughs> that is true uh so i guess what's something you wish you knew when you were starting this whole starting your own school endeavor that would have made it you know easier for you something that you know someone that's maybe thinking about doing themselves what kind of something you wish you knew when you were first starting out um something i wish i'd known when i first started out um uh, I wish I'd known the answer to tricky questions like, what do you wish you'd known 20 years ago? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, there's not, there isn't any one thing in particular that jumps out, but what would have been very beneficial would have been some mentorship of some kind uh, to nudge me along and, uh, and somebody to kick over ideas with. Uh, somebody to... Finance, I think, is very important, and I don't just mean somebody to do your tax return. I mean somebody to help you with your budget, your management accounts. I think that's crucial. You need to know what your financial uh, position is. You might get a bill, and if you haven't got enough money to pay the bill uh, and you you can't pay your rent, that I think that's where people go bust or they can't pay their salaries. You know, um, So knowing your financial stuff is really, really important. I think we should start from a benchmark in assuming that we're talking about experienced teachers who know how to teach and are good at it and like it. If we just assume that, you're then taking a teacher who is essentially a giving, warm, caring person and asking them to start a business where you have to be a bit more hard-nosed. So I think there's a personality clash. I think that teacher-type personality really needs business help. Okay, that makes sense. So if you're, you're a great teacher, that doesn't mean you're going to be great at starting your own school, for, for sure. Absolutely. I mean, so I had I was in the advantage of position where I wasn't a particularly good teacher and people didn't particularly like me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Cool. Joke, listeners. <laughs> yeah, nice. Uh, so how about, I don't know about the marketing stuff. So what do you, you know, you said you do some marketing and you offer that to people that franchise with you, but just in general, uh, what kind of do you kind of show off about your school? Because, you know, there is, it's hard to separate yourself, right? What makes you special and how do you, how do you get students in there? What, what kind of your strategy on that front? Yeah, it is very difficult to differentiate in the market. So our uh, four core um, principles that we get across to prospective students and have to keep continually remind our existing students of are that first off, we only employ qualified teachers. Uh, second, we are a member of Zengaikyo, which is a standards organization, mainly for business practices. Uh, third, that uh, we do external uh, tests. So our kids do JAPEC, for example. And so both Zengaikyo and, and JAPEC are external audits on what we do. It's not just us saying that we're good. It's uh, recognized professional 
bodies that uh, authenticate our standards. And fourthly, that we counsel and show progression uh, to all students on an ongoing basis. So th those are the four things that we explain that differentiates us in the market. So if you compare those things to all of the major chains, except for Shane, uh, ECC, Novageos, etc., you don't need to be qualified to work there. So basically, you could be in that position we were talking about earlier on, about being a 21-year-old straight out of college, straight into the classroom, teaching English, having had three days of training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I was going to ask, so how do you get your... How do you attract the your employees then? Because you know, do you offer them more money? Because you you're asking them to be more qualified, obviously. So you can't you're not just taking anyone that has a degree in anything, right? Yeah. So um, going back to what I said earlier on about uh, franchises and branches, the only um, the only teaching employees are at my head school here in Hirakata Kordien. Uh, we have three, and uh, two of them we recruit from overseas. One we re recruit from in Japan. Uh, another thing I learned earlier on was that uh, if you pay, if you advertise that you pay a lot of money, you might get people that are good, but you'll certainly get people who want money. The two do not necessarily go hand in hand. And so I've employed two CELTA qualified teachers up in Niigata. Uh, we, ha we had a branch up uh, in uh, Ogier, Niigata, which has since become a franchise. And I brought in uh, successively uh two teachers from overseas, both CELTA qualified, and I actually paid them less than 250,000 yen a month. Okay. So How? does not follow that if you pay over what is considered to be the going rate that you will get good people. It's all about getting the right person in the right position at the right time. Now, they were incentivized in other ways. You know, there was, a, there was an apartment was, was wrapped into the deal, and it, we got them into Japan and sponsored their visas, and they had a a pretty good sort of lifestyle and schedule. Uh, it was certainly less than 25 t contact hours per week. So in that respect, it was quite a nice, uh, a nice contract, but it's not necessarily always about the money. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what kind of things do you look for then when, cause you know, a lot of people listen to the show want to work in Japan in the future. So what kind of things do you look for? What kind of things do you like to see on a resume or is it all, is the interview the main thing? How do you, what, what, what do you think is makes a good teacher? What makes a good teacher? That's yeah. Um, I, I think so much of that just depends on personality, not only of the teacher but of the learner. Um, I've long since um, delegated recruitment to other people in the organisation. I haven't actually recruited a teacher personally for for many years, but we have a process that we go through. We advertise, and because we only accept qualified teachers, that uh, cuts out a lot of people that we wouldn't want to deal with. We want to see a bit of experience. We want to see a track record. We basically have to like them. We've got to work together and get on. I think this is true of all organizations. Each organization has a personality and people have got to fit in. And um, yeah, so then we do an interview either in person or via Skype and we watch a teaching demo. Um, pretty much we can tell from that whether we're interested in going forward or not. And, you know, the interviewee themselves will have certain uh, conditions that they want to be met or sometimes we can meet them sometimes we can't so I'd much rather get into a discussion uh, with the potential employee about how we can work together rather than how I can employ them mm -hmm. okay that makes sense so you like that you like when someone uh, you know asks some questions of you and expect you know wants to know about things more than just saying I'll do whatever you say right uh, yeah yeah although it's nice to have somebody who'll do what you tell them to do <laughs> well yeah that's true. sort of that's like true. the balance of that stuff you know I, I don't I want um you know, we provide a, um, 
particularly for adult lessons, we provide a curriculum that is a framework, but if our teachers are not adding themselves to that, they're not doing their job. So people need a bit of gumption. We have a bit of a saying at Modern English as well, you know, that odd is good as long as it's good odd. Um, and so you've, you've got to be careful of the people that are completely odd. But we, we like quirky people here at Modern English. You know, people have got a bit of something about them. Um, yeah, so I don't want to go too long here, but I know you, you mentioned at the beginning you do a lot of other stuff. So I guess like, uh, I guess more rather than going through each individual one, it might be more interesting to hear like, how do you know when this might be a good idea? Do you just look for holes in the market and say this is a chance for you know modern English to get bigger? This is a chance for modern English to do something else. What do you kind of? How do you? You just expanding as much as you can, or what do you strategically choose? How do your next endeavors? How do you do that? Yeah, definitely gaps in the market, and it's just basically through your day to day work, you will see where there is a need either for a product or a service. We filled a couple of those gaps. Happy Valley, uh, our preschool uh, brand, was was born out of that. That we I wanted an off the shelf solution rather than to spend all the time and money making one ourselves, but it didn't exist, so we had to make it. Now that's become a bestseller and it's selling internationally, so that that's been great. That's been very successful. We're working on a, an online scheduling CRM system, and there's a definite need for that um, for us and and for other people. So yeah, you know, if there's a you know, essentially, if there's a solution you can use that somebody's already built and they will support it, I would I would suggest to everybody that they use that because it will be less painful and cheaper to you in the long run. But if you're looking for business opportunities, through your regular work, opportunities will become apparent. And uh, those are the ones where you have to make a decision as to how much time and money you need to spend on pro- providing that solution and how much income it's going to make you. And it's not easy, you know. Everybody makes mistakes. We've we've made some certainly. So yeah, you gotta. I think you know what I've learned here is you're the kind of person that when you, you see opportunity, you have to go after it. So it takes the right kind of person to you know start your own school, start your own textbook series, start your own everything, right? So this isn't really for everyone, right? Absolutely not. You know, I think I said earlier on about uh, employees. You know, it's the right person in, in the at the right time in the right location. You know, and uh, that's true for everything. I think everything in life. It's, uh, it's all getting a bit philosophical now, but everything, <laughs> everything in life is down to whether it's a good fit for you and your personality and the time in your life as well, you know. Um, so it's absolutely not for everybody else. So anybody who wants to start their own school, whether they are interested in starting one with us or on their own, they should think really, really hard about it and they should sit down and just, you know, the first thing to do probably would just write two simple lists of uh, plus and minus, pros and cons. It's a very simple approach, uh, but it's very effective. What are the good things about doing this potentially? What are the potential bad things about doing that? And that will give you, uh, uh, that's the first step, I think, in deciding whether it's right for you or not. I guess I want to ask you, because you're still in teaching, in the teaching world, but teaching was not your passion by any means. So I don't, I don't want to disparage teaching. I had a great time teaching, and, and I actually like to think that I was pretty good at it. Um, I, like I said, I was never particularly good with kids. Um, I very much enjoyed teaching adults who wanted to learn. Uh, I found it difficult to get people to talk if they didn't want to talk. And I think as we've all experienced, there are lots of students who don't really want to be in the classroom. Uh, But for those that do want to learn and do improve, yeah, I I had a great time doing all of that. Um, But I didn't want to do it forever. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being a teacher. And it's a very, very demanding role, uh, much more demanding than some of the things I do. But I didn't want to do it forever. So that's why I, I started to do other things. Yeah, yeah. So just to 
make that point because I always talk about, you know, finding something you have fun with in your work is important. So you kind of, even though teaching wasn't your thing, you found managing and being a franchisor kind of was your kind of fun, your outlet, your passion, right? I'm not sure if managing is a passion of mine. I think making things is a passion of mine. So making the school, making the brands. For the Happy Valley stuff, I created the characters, did the art direction, wrote a lot of the music. I think, I think so. The creative side of things, I think, is is what I enjoy, and I think uh, in business you have to be very creative. Of course, you need all of the uh, the systems and the finance. You need that uh, kind of hard nosed side, but you have to be creative to find a solution to a problem, and then you have to be able to sell it. Uh, you have to get money out of people's pockets, and that's kind of uh, that's the hardest thing to do. And I think you need creative solutions for all of those, and that's what I enjoy. Cool. All right. Yeah. So I guess I, I learned a lot of this interview. Thanks for coming on today to share about your story. Um, Thanks for having me. That was a, that was very quick. That was only about ten minutes, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just about that. Uh, um, so I'm gonna obviously send everyone to your websites and stuff like that. But is there anything you're kind of working on, or any one thing you want to send people to, or is it just modernenglish.com or anywhere? Where can we check you out more? Um, if people had a look at modernenglish.net, that would be great. There's also happyvalley.tv, and then there's our kind of. Um, the Hong Kong side of things, melimited.com. Uh, that would be great. And if anybody out there who is running a school and they're interested in helping us test our online scheduling system, if they can get in touch with me via the modernenglish.net website, that would be great. There you go, guys. So, right, Simon, I'll let you go. Thanks for coming on and I uh, wish you the best of luck in the future. Yeah, I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Thanks for listening to the Inside Japan podcast. To learn more about having more fun while working in Japan, head to altinsider.com. To find your first or next job in Japan, head to jobsinjapan.com and sign up today. And be sure to check back often as you never know when your next job will go online.